And today we're going to enter the third and final chapter of the short epistle to Titus. If you have your Bibles open, you are going to want to be in the book of Titus. We will get there soon enough. Now up until this point, if you've been with us, Paul has been instructing this young church planter on how not only to discern the character qualities that should be found in all good leadership, um, every single candidate, but character qualities that should be found in all who call upon the name of Christ. Not just those who are going to lead, but also those who call themselves Christians. Now, in our family devotion time together, we recently came across the word salvation. Um, it's a word that we talk about in church a whole lot. You've probably heard it mentioned once or twice. We hear a preacher say, we need to be saved. And the question is, oh, what is this salvation that they always talk about? Why are Christians always talking about salvations? Why do we need it? Now, to begin with, salvation that we speak of, the concept that is found within the Bible is twofold. It's twofold. First and foremost, it's saving from an eternal punishment of sin. We are all sinners, and we are called sinners because we've broken the law of God. Plain and simple, that's what his word tells us. We have chosen to worship ourselves instead of worshiping him, and we have chosen to follow our ways instead of his. All we have to do is break his law just once, and we suffer the consequence. And the Bible's incredibly clear that we have all sinned, no matter how good we may think we have been. And Jesus died to pay for our sins, a payment that we could not afford. And upon believing upon him to payment of our sins and deciding to follow him, we are effectively transferred from death to life, spiritually speaking. And this is what Paul is actually going to be discussing later on in verses 5 to 7 when we get to them later today. Now, I said that salvation is twofold. And the first is saving from an eternal punishment of sin, what the Bible calls the second death, which is an eternal separation from the presence of God. The second part of salvation is the life change that happens right now in the life of the believer. Right at the moment when we accept Christ as Savior, and from that moment on, as long as you're here on earth, God continues to work in you to change your life. And this brings us back to Paul's writing of this letter. He's telling Timothy that men and women who have accepted Christ as Savior and have allowed the Holy Spirit to work in their lives are going to start finding characteristics that define a healthy Christian lifestyle. They will see their salvation become evident and those who are following Jesus regularly. And this is kind of what we dug into last time together, that men and women who choose to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly will start to show these characteristics, no matter what station they may find themselves in, whether you're young or old, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're free or slave, which he even talked about last time. We should be developing these characteristics as we grow in Christ. And Paul gives us a place to aim our sights at with our memory verse. So we can say our memory verse together, which comes from Titus 2.12b. Let's say that one together. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Thank you very much. These three areas that he has given us, soberly, righteously, and godly, they're foundational areas that once firmly established in our lives become the base of all other character development. Everything else gets built upon these three things. Now, we as Christ followers are called to live a different standard than the world around us. And you may have noticed that every generation without Christ slowly allows their moral standards to shift, to slip more and more. 
And I've seen it in my own lifetime, and you've probably even seen it more so. A world without a firm, unmoving foundation in Jesus Christ will slowly shift its views and standards to the point that anything becomes acceptable, morally speaking, even what was once considered the most detestable of sins. So you're going to ask, well, pastor, how do you know that? Like, what is your basis for saying that to us? Well, that's a great question. The president of the college that I went to used to like to say the words, he said, learn from others' mistakes. You won't live long enough to make them all. Wise words. Now, I'm pretty sure he was quoting somebody else when he said that, especially to college students. Uh, But regardless of the source, it's some pretty wise advice. Have you ever heard of the Old Testament? You guys have probably heard of the, it's the larger part of the Bible. Of course you've heard of the Old Testament. We all have. Have you ever wondered why it's in the Christian Bible when it's about a Jewish heritage? There are pockets of Christians today that are arguing that it should be taken out. And in my opinion, those who suggest this are incredibly short-sighted. Through the lens of the Old Testament, not only do we understand our need for a Savior, but in the nation of Israel, we find out what happens when man tries to approach God without God. They try to forget him. They try to replace him. And ultimately, they try to be him. Every single time, it fails miserably, again and again. Every single time, they try to live by their standards instead of his, the same thing happens. And it's predictable in the pattern that it happens time and again. And you watch the nation morally decline. And this is how I know that unless we choose to follow him, to acknowledge his standards and stand by them, that we too will suffer their fate because we can learn from their mistakes. The mistakes of the nation Israel, Paul saw them, and he wanted us as the church to become a better example of living for God under Christ to the light of the lost world around us. And today, Paul is again going to be pointing us to raise the standard of what we view as acceptable Christian conduct. Today's sermon title comes from an old book uh, in, the, in, the Testament, in the Old Testament, um, and it's about a man who once faced the same exact options that we too are faced with. Our sermon title is Choose Him Today. Choose Him Today. And I forgot to do the verses. The verses are wrong. We're actually three, one through seven. <sighs> Now, I need a little bit of background into this title before we get into our sermon today, before we get there. One of the most famous moments in the history of Israel was when it was released and freed from their bondage under the hard-pressed fist of Egypt, when God released them from the slavery. And during this time, some of the most amazing miracles that were ever performed were performed in front of this nation. Rivers were turned to blood. The sun refused to rise for days on end, and the sea was split in two, allowing an entire people group to march through it on dry ground. God heard the cries of his people, and he rescued them through a way that only he could. After the nation, you would think, had seen all of these miracles, that they would be willing to follow God to the ends of the earth, no matter what. Having seen these miracles, going through the ten plagues, And then having walked literally through the sea on dry ground, you would think that they would have enough faith. They could say, you know what, God, wherever you lead, I will follow because you are clearly in control, right? But what happens? At the first sign of an obstacle that they can't humanly overcome, they retreat and they fail. 
They see an obstacle, and humanly speaking, it stops them in their tracks, and they all stop following God, all except for two men. One was named Joshua, and the other was Caleb. And as a punishment for their disobedience, an entire, complete lack of faith, and in generation, the generation died in the wilderness. They weren't allowed to go into the promised land. Only those two men and their families were allowed to go. Just outside of the promised land, they died. Joshua and Caleb lived on. And eventually they had an opportunity to bring the next generation into the promised land. And when that time finally came for God to move, these two men led the charge of that next generation. When the conquest was complete, Joshua reminded the people that only by choosing to serve the Lord every day, that by moving closer to God daily, would the people be able to experience his blessings in the land of promise, which they were now given. And at the end of his life, in his final public statement to the people, it reflected a life of a man who had realized what was most important in this life. And he says these words, very familiar words. You've probably heard them before, seen them on a coffee mug. Choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua reminded the people that day that they were going to be tempted on an ongoing basis to stop following God wholeheartedly. That they would have to choose daily who they were going to serve. And as we look into the book of Titus today, we're going to see that Paul reminds Titus of the exact same thing. That serving God has to be a choice. And that life is going to throw many reasons at you, many excuses at you to get you to choose otherwise. So Paul begins chapter 3 with these words. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to read verse 1. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. So he starts off with the words, remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities. That's an interesting place to start a chapter. It becomes even more interesting if you know your history. Conservative, conservative theologians are going to place this book as having been written between the uh, time of 64 to 66 AD. Some will go as far as 68, some will go all the way back as far as 62, but it seems unlikely. Most likely 64 to 66 AD. Why is that date important? Well, have you ever heard of a Roman emperor by the name of Nero? Historians will tell us that he accidentally set a fire to most of Rome, and instead of owning up to his complete and utter incompetence, he blamed the Christians and he outlawed the religion, actually opening the door once he actually blamed them for setting fire to half the city to the most despicable of things against the people group that have ever been done. He would take Christians and he would dip them in wax and light them on fire to light his parties. He would take men and women and children into a coliseum and feed them to lions for entertainment for his people. Absolutely atrocious things. And guess what year all of this started? 64 AD. So when Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, he must have had a really good reason. His reason is not that we should respect a person, but rather we should respect an office. And this reflects what he had written to the church in Rome when he had said these words. He said, Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
So both Peter in his writings and Jesus during his trial before Pilate said incredibly similar statements. Who is ultimately the authority according to this verse that Paul has just said? It's God. God is clearly in control. Paul says that no authority is in place unless it has been allowed by God for a purpose. And this is where many have very divisive opinions and as to where our following the word and standing for our freedom kind of separates. You'll see it in our nation today. Regardless of how you feel, no matter how incompetent or even evil a leadership may seem, our call, according to the word, is to be a subject to the authorities. And in the formation of our own nation, if you go back to our own history of how we were formed as a nation, our nation's founding fathers did not want to separate from the country across the sea. In fact, actually, if you read their letters, they were actually trying to convince the king that they were proper subjects. They were trying to follow the law. And it wasn't until the king declared a war on his own subjects that they finally decide to separate. And that's how our nation began. Paul was not ignorant of the evil of his current day's leadership. However, he knew that anarchy was not a viable solution to change a regime that was evil. He was telling the Christians that they were to show respect to the position that God had established, something that's waning in our own nation today. This idea is reflected in the character of David, King David, as he awaited God's timing to place him on the throne. That's in the Old Testament, which we just referenced a little while ago. David had been presented with an opportunity more than once in his life to take the throne by force, to take the life of Saul, to end his own suffering, to take the throne, which he had already been anointed for by the prophet Samuel. He technically already had the right to the throne, but he refused time and again to take Saul's life when he had the opportunity. He refused to lay the hand on the one he called God's anointed. In fact, later in David's life, after having ascended to the throne, when a man lied about killing Saul, thinking he would gain David's good graces, David had him executed. David respected what God had ordained, even to the frustration of his contemporaries. Think about it for just a minute from a human perspective. If David had taken Saul's life so that he could be king, what precedent would he have set going forward? that killing the king was the very best way to get someone new in. And this is exactly what was happening in every other nation around them. But God had different plans. So Paul continues in verse 2. He says, To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now last week during our time together, our theme was becoming godly examples to those around us. And here is Paul is continuing forward with that same idea and that theme. And you're going to want to notice here, he's no longer speaking to individual groups. He's now speaking to Christians as a whole. Last time we were together, he was breaking down different groups. Now he's together with everybody. He lists qualities, and he says, in doing so, he's defining for us what the bride of Christ should look like to the world. First, he says, speak evil of no one. What he's saying is, don't bad mouth, bad mouth anyone. And the wording in this statement is given in such a way that he means no one for no reason. Don't bad no one. Don't bad mouth no one for no reason. He's saying don't speak down of someone even when they've really earned it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've failed in this area more than once in my lifetime. 
There, I, uh, there are people in my life that I have, uh, I felt they earned a uh, verbal beating, so I gave them one. To which Paul is saying, it's not worth putting your reputation at risk over their incompetence. It's not worth putting your reputation at risk over their incompetence. And this is why he continues on by saying, be peaceable, be gentle, showing all humility to all men. Can I let you in on a secret? People who aren't humble get easily offended. People who aren't humble get easily offended. Men and women who are not showing the character trait of humility are the ones who often get offended. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He said these words, I give each of you this warning. Don't think better of yourselves than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. It's from the new living. This very thing, thinking high of ourselves than we ought to, is the same reason that we badmouth others, because clearly they're worse than us. Whenever we push someone down to bring ourselves up, we are wrong. And this is the message that Paul is telling us, to be a humble people who show humility to all. When we look at John 3, 16, for God so loved the whole world, I like to point out that all in that particular passage means all, and that's all that all can mean. It means everyone. And the same applies here in 3.2 when he says, show humility to all men. It means all men, and it can't mean anything less. He says, have a humble spirit as you deal with everyone, even those who really deserve otherwise. As I said earlier, when Paul instructed us to be obedient to authorities, both Peter and Jesus, Peter in his writings and Jesus when he stood before Pilate, said something very similar in their statements. So Jesus is on trial before Pilate. You're probably familiar if you've ever been to an Easter play or sermon. The Son of God, he's sinless and he's done nothing wrong. He's on trial in front of the Roman governor. The only man to walk the face of the earth who was completely perfect in his relationship with God every single moment of the 33 years that he's lived on the earth. And he's being accused of slanderous things. Things that are completely fabricated. And they're fabricated by sinful men. And how does he respond? In humility, and he knows their sin, he understands it better than they ever could. And still he holds his tongue because he knows that throwing words around in the moment, words coming from him, in all reality, that would be completely correct because he's God in the flesh, they wouldn't produce the character God is calling out of each and every single one of us. Almost as if he recognizes the depravity of our position without Jesus, the desperate need of each of Jesus' accusers. Paul continues on in verse 3, and he says these words, For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. There's a saying that I'm pretty sure you've probably heard before. It goes, he who lives in a glass house should not throw stones. And Paul says in this verse, don't go around bad-mouthing people. Why? Because we too were once foolish as well. We were disobedient. We were deceived into serving every whim and fancy of our flesh. We once hated the world. We hated one another. And while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Jesus still died for us. That particular verse is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. That one says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And the wording in the original Greek in that passage actually lends its idea to the while we were still in the act of sinning against him, almost like while we were still throwing a stone at him, he willingly died for us and our sin. Paul's warning for us is not to forget where we have come from and what Jesus has saved us from, the depths of where our sin was leading us. So what changed? Now, I want to do something different today than I normally do. So I'm going to put verse 4 up on the screen, and I actually want to read this one together. Okay, so let's read this one together. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. What is the kindness and love that he is speaking of? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the kindness of God poured out on us. Why? Because God saw us in our state. He saw that we couldn't improve ourselves without our help, that we couldn't reach his level of perfection without his intervention, knowing that he was the only one that could keep his standards. Jesus came to bring salvation to all. We talked about salvation earlier in the message, about what it is and what it means. But how do we obtain it? Well, let's say one more verse together. I promise I won't make you say anything else today. Are they ready? Together. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Find this verse in your Bible. Underline it, star it, highlight it. Whatever you do to help yourself remember a Bible verse, do it to this verse within your Bible. Paul is saying that not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Well, what does he mean by works? You can do nothing to improve your standing before God on your own. You can't build enough orphanages. You can't give enough to the church. And you can't help enough stranded drivers along the side of the road to earn your way into God's graces. No matter what amount of money you can try to throw at it, no matter how much time or effort, none of this can purchase this for you. Not only can you not do enough to earn it, before you can get it, but you can't do enough to earn it once you have it. If you couldn't earn it, if it had to be given to you for free in the first place, then you're not good enough to keep it. And you're like, whoa, wait a second, pastor. What are you saying? Where are you going here? You don't have to prove to him that you're worth saving. You don't have to prove to him that you're worth saving. You also don't have to live in fear that he's going to change and then take it all from you. According to this verse, can you earn your salvation on your own merit? No, no, you cannot. Can you earn a good standing before God? By the same logic, if you can't be good enough to earn it, you can't be bad enough to lose it. If you look at this verse and continue on with it, that according to his mercy, he saved us. What we do, things like giving to others who are in need, we don't do them in an attempt to earn our position. We can't because it's already been paid for us. Now, in my house, we celebrate Christmas. You probably celebrate Christmas in yours. Or at least you give gifts. Every Christmas, we exchange presents. When someone gives you a gift, what is your reaction? Are you thankful? Or do you try to offer them money on the spot to try to pay for the gift? How offensive would it be if someone you loved comes up and says, here, here's this gift, and you're like, oh, I've always wanted this gift. How much was that? I'll pay you back. How offended would they be? But how often do we try to do that to God when he gives us salvation? 
We should be thankful. It's not what he wants for us to try to earn our salvation. What he wants is for us to be grateful and to pass on that gift out of a grateful heart. So let's look at verses six and seven together. It says, whom he poured out on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says that we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guide in this life. That the gift of God has been poured out in abundance upon us through Jesus. Notice that Paul says, and he points it all back to Jesus. He says we have been justified by his grace. He says that we are justified. That's a legal term, uh, meaning a balancing out of our ledger, that we're no longer in debt, that the, the slate has been wiped clean and we're equal now. We're declared righteous by our faith on the merit of Christ's sacrifice. It's the addition of Jesus' righteousness and the subtraction of our sin at the same time. And what is the end product? He says we become heirs, co-heirs with God and Jesus Christ. We are at the moment of salvation, we are adopted into the family of God permanently. And this is why Paul is finishing by saying that we have the hope of eternal life. It's not just some passing fancy, the way you and I typically use hope. Well, I hope I win this. No, this is an expectant hope. I know that this will happen and it will come to pass because God has said it will. So let's recap and wrap this whole thing up. Today we've covered the first seven verses of chapter three. And in these verses that we've covered today, Paul has taken us from looking at older Christians as examples to Christ himself as our example. He's shown us that despite our feelings towards others, we should always keep our choice of words and our choice of actions in check. To remember that we are servants of the Most High, that he has allowed kings to rise to power for his own reasons. Sometimes that reason is to stir hearts. Sometimes that reason is to teach a nation a lesson in humility, which he often did as we look in the Old Testament. Whatever the case, God has a plan, and he has not forgotten us. He wants each and every single one of us to become banner carriers of his name. He offers us a place in his family if we are willing to humble ourselves and to submit to his authority in our lives. So I want to close with two questions today. Question number one, who have you been speaking evil of? Maybe the better question is, how have you been justifying it? Paul reminds us through the actions of Jesus himself that the humble servant of God does not put others down, even when we feel like they desperately deserve it. Final question. Have you accepted the gift of salvation or are you still trying to earn it? As long as you try to earn it, you will never truly appreciate it. You will be worn out. You will be frazzled and you'll be at the end of your rope trying to be the one to hold it all together. God never said you had to earn it. He gave it freely and all we have to do is accept it with gratitude. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the instruction that you've left us and the fact that you loved us so much that you made the first move. Even when we were in the act of sinning against you, you still chose us, which is such a hard thing to comprehend. Father, I ask that you continue to work in our hearts. Lord, help us to rest in the assurance that if we have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, 
that he is going to continue to be the one that holds us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, I ask that you help us to grow, help us to cherish the things that we have, help us to be wise stewards of what you've given. Help us to be men and women who represent you well no matter where we are. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have given us. Help us to use it and to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.